0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast and today I'm talking to Dr Bridget Brooklyn who is a lecturer at Western Sydney University and she's an expert on late 19th and 20th century Australian political and social history with a special interest in feminism and she is the author of did Petrov matter in the book Elections Matter 10 Federal Elections That Shaped Australia, edited by Frank Bongiorno? Welcome to Afternoon Light, Bridget. Thank you Georgina, lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on and to talk about the 1954 election. We've just recovered from the 2022 election and had a change of government and all the conclusions that have been drawn in the immediate aftermath and of course the longer term implications of changes of government and the the election and what went wrong and what went right depending on which political persuasion you are or whether you're just an observer. But tell me about the 1954 election and why it is one of the 10 federal elections that shaped Australia.
1: The obvious thing about the 54 election is that it comes hard on the heels of the revelation of the defection of uh, Vladimir Petrov from the Soviet embassy uh, at the beginning of the election campaign. However, there are a number of reasons beyond that, why the 54 election is important, even though it's dubbed the Petrov election, it, it represents the consolidation of Menzies' long uh, incumbency. And the tendency is to see that 16 years as monolithic, that from 1949 he's just sort of, uh, rusted on. Uh, but the first five years are really quite shaky, Menzies. And so the 54 election is a little bit of a watershed. Uh, We might say that 55 is is the really deciding election for his incumbency. But in 54, we see the coming together of the Cold War anxieties uh, generated by the Petrov revelations. Um, But we also see the beginnings of post-war recovery that in the five years since he was elected in 49, he's had quite a rocky time. Uh, there's been uh, more or less galloping inflation. Uh, the economy has been very rocky and so that really in, uh, in the preceding years, 52 and 53 in particular, his uh, ascendancy is quite shaky and uh, the polls suggest that if there had been an election in 52 or 53 that he wouldn't have won it. So 54 is important for that reason as well.
0: The result in terms of the the two-party preferred vote is quite interesting and, I mean, we have these, these sort of results from time to time. I think John Howard had one where he didn't win the two-party preferred vote, but he won the majority of seats. This is the same in this election, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It's really, uh, it's a narrow uh, victory in terms of percentage of the vote, 49.3 for the coalition and 50.7. For Labor, so it's quite a narrow victory, uh, seven seat uh, victory to the coalition. So it's by no means a landslide.
0: No, and and as you said, it it that sense that that it was easy for Menzies for sixteen years. He was just his he was had insurmountable political support and power. Is is quite clearly not the case. Um, what. What was the significance of the Petrov defection to the election? And I'm thinking, you know, we're in the middle of the Cold War. It's really, really, really a dominating issue, not just in Australia, but but globally. It must have made a fair impact.
1: I think that impact has been um, overemphasised. It certainly did make an impact. Uh, But when we look at what's happening in the international scene generally uh, as compared to how Australians perceive what's happening internationally, yes, we've had a communist victory in China in 1949 and the uh, victory of uh, the Viet Minh in um, Vietnam occurs during the election campaign. This domino theory is is a new one. That Eisenhower's falling domino speech occurs in on the seventh of April, nineteen fifty four. So, in some sense, we're yeah we're well into the the Cold War, but I don't see it as uh, as important, say, as when the Cold War really heats up in in the following decade. So that. Uh, really what concerns the Australian electorate are, yes, Cold War anxieties, but also anxieties about the immediate past. That really what uh, leads to Chifley's defeat in 49 is is rationing and post-war austerity um, and the promise of prosperity that Menzies offers, which he isn't able really to deliver in the early years. But the memory of depression and war that the those who are old enough to vote are old enough to remember both of those things. And so the wish to really put that behind them and to look forward to this promised prosperity is is another really important thing in, uh, I think, in the minds of voters when they go to the polls in May 54.
0: Do you think, I mean, obviously um, acknowledging how important the hip pocket was as an election issue in fifty four and probably much more so than than I think contemporary analysis would would give it credit for. but do you think Menzies exploited the Petrov defection to his political advantage in that campaign through april april may fifty
1: four? Uh, no, I don't think he did. I think the evidence is quite strong that he didn't. Uh, first of all, the the evidence suggests that he really didn't know about even the possibility of a defection until February 1954, and then it was still only a possibility. But Petrov vacillated for a long time before he finally defected in, uh, on the 3rd of April 1954. So really up until that time, ASIO is not sure if he's going to defect, that he's a somewhat... Um, volatile character, is a heavy drinker, and uh, there are all sorts of things going on, and really what is the catalyst for his defection is that his uh, relationship with his superiors in the Soviet embassy have deteriorated so much that he is uh, uh, fearful about what what might await him when he returns to the Soviet Union. Uh, So really, uh, although the possibility of him defecting has been known to ASIO since mid-1953, the evidence suggests that that Menzies was not aware of it until after he had defected that the briefing that uh, Charles Spry Colonel Charles Spry of ASIO gave him on the 10th of February 1954 was described as a preliminary briefing and there the defection was still uncertain. So that at the very earliest, he, he knew then. There is a suggestion that he knew earlier than that, around September 53, when, uh, when an ASIO um, undercover uh, worker, um, uh, Dr. Michael Bieloguski, uh, advised uh, Menzies' uh, private secretary, Jeffrey Yeend, that this could also take place. The evidence does suggest, it's not conclusive, but it does suggest that he didn't know about it then that he staffed this out to, to Yeend uh, and that because it was only a possibility at that stage, there was no need to inform the Prime Minister and uh, so that the evidence does suggest that he really only knew of the actual defection after it had occurred, so on the 4th of April and the announcement that he made was on the
0: 13th. During the campaign was much made Menzies of, of the defection? Was he, did he refer to it much? Did he use his you know, any anti-socialist rhetoric in relation to, to, to this and what it meant for Australia?
1: Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, he, he actually wanted his coalition colleagues not to mention Petrov. Uh, it did get mentioned a couple of times, but um, there are a number of reasons why he didn't. Uh, first of all, the press didn't take a very uh, kind view of, of mention of Petrov because the Royal Commission um, on Espionage had only just started sitting by the time of the election. And uh, so nothing had been verified. So the, the certainly felt that that Petrov should be kept out of the campaign. Now, you can certainly mount a persuasive argument that that he... Used other uh, sort of Cold War type of rhetoric, uh, the say the blurring of socialism and communism uh, during his campaign. But so much is really directed um, uh, towards domestic issues that we that he does want to evoke some of the unpopular things about the previous Chifley government that did lead to the Chifley government being defeated in 49 that it hadn't done enough to combat communism in the union movement. And although the 49 coal strike was not a decisive uh, uh, matter for the defeat of the Chifley government, all of these kinds of things do get... Uh, Menzies does mention those kinds of things... Um, the other important thing is just the, the, the really, I suppose, traditional uh, tendency to, to go after these things as being what what distinguishes Labour from the Coalition and from the Liberal Party, the the uh, the mass versus the individual. That uh, the the term socialism is is used um, in a number of ways. Uh, socialism is part of the Labour Party the socialism objective is part of the Labour Party platform. It means something different from communism, but it there is a bit of a blurring of the boundaries there, socialism being you know, sort of strong Keynesian measures communism being more this uh, external threat, uh, sort of Soviet-inspired insurgency and so forth. Uh, So he he certainly does play on that. But uh, again, those are the kinds of rhetorical devices he would have used, uh, whether Petrov was, was, was part of the mix or not.
0: I think we look back on the 1950s and obviously the Petrov defection and the Royal Commission afterwards with a strong emphasis on the influence of communism and debates over communism. Um, and I wonder how much we we um, import the benefits of hindsight, I guess, and, and, and all that, you know, the reflections on all that happened then. Obviously, Menzies trying to ban the Communist Party, the, the, the High Court case and the positions that the Labor Party leader, Doc Evatt, took at the time. You know, we look at all that happened and think, well, the 1950s were, were all about communism. Do you think that is incorrect? We've sort of exaggerated the importance of communism in the 1950s beyond what it, how important it actually was.
1: Yes, I think we have. But this is, of course, um, always a peril to um, to have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, And given how long the Cold War lasted, that it's in full swing by 1954. But when we look at it in in, in the long view, it's still in the early days, and that it really does heat up uh, in in the decade to come. Uh, So. There is a bit of a tendency to see this as monolithic and, and to also, uh, so because the Cold War becomes so dominant in the second half of the 20th century, that, that does tend to colour our view of the 50s. Um, and so we tend to underplay, I think, the backward-looking nature of the 50s, again, to to think of the Australian electorate as positioned really still with these earlier memories of depression and war very fresh. Mm. And uh, I, I think that's the biggest uh, disadvantage of hindsight, that we forget that this is still very important. This uh, post-war austerity is really what loses the election for Chifley in forty-nine, And given that it has been a tough few years, uh, economically speaking, in Australia, uh, up to 54, that the fear I think of returning to that austerity or of the economy somehow delivering something pretty bleak is, is still in people's minds because uh, the economy has been so volatile, so we've had the, the, the depression. But then in the wake of the Second World War, the, 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 there is still rationing. And, um, and and the fear of returning to that is probably, in some sense, greater than the fear of global communism. Uh, the other thing is that you know, France, um, the, the French uh, kicked out of Vietnam in early May 54, just before the election. But the, the impact of that isn't really felt by ordinary people. You, you might uh, say that the impact is felt at, at, at a foreign policy level, but uh, on the level of ordinary people, I don't think so. The Australians are not very sophisticated in their their understanding of foreign policy. And so communism is, is is you know, they know that there's a Soviet Union and that there's a, a, a communist government in China, but, but, of course, the Vietnam War hasn't happened yet. Uh, so this threat of Asian communism is definitely there, certainly also in the wake of the Korean War, but that's sort of over. And um, so I, I think the tendency to see that as, as everybody, you know, sort of looking under the, the beds for reds is, is overemphasised when we look back on the, on the first half of the 1950s.
0: I wonder, Bridget, if you could comment on the importance of the two leaders in this 54 campaign. Um, so we have Robert Menzies obviously leading what is still a very young political party, the Liberal Party of Australia. Mm. It had been formed in 44 but it won its first election in 49. Um, so it's been in, in government for just five years or under five years. Mm. Um but but then his alternate, the the opposition leader at the time, Doc Evatt. I mean, a brilliant legal mind. Um, Menzies and, and Doc Evatt have quite a similar sort of um, trajectory through getting scholarships, being brilliant students, being brilliant lawyers, and and um, and Doc Evatt you know, really um, has a an exceptional career as a as a barrister and jurist. Um, they're two. They're two very similar but but obviously quite different um, t- quite different figures standing for quite different offerings and policy terms. This 54 election is described as one of those early presidential style elections where you're pitching Menzies V Evert um, and, and the public obviously makes its choice not terribly clearly, but it does make a choice. How do you see it as, as a evidence of, of, a, of a tendency in Australia to elevate the leader above the party?
1: Mm. yes it's it's not presidential i suppose in the way that elections become but it it does have the makings of that and of course menzies is a very um although it's a young party menzies has been around for a long time but importantly um as i think was mentioned in one of your previous podcasts that uh He's learned from his uh, years in the wilderness, and he's—he's he's not just a brilliant mind. He's also learned the art of politics, and so although it's a young party, he's a very skilled politician by fifty-four. Uh, Evan is—or uh, uh, something I read recently described him as—as as worn out by nineteen fifty-one when he becomes leader. Because he does have this brilliant career behind him, and and I think the important thing here, here is uh, intellectual brilliance is not uh, a, a guarantor of political success. That you do have to know the art of politics, and Everett doesn't. That he is uh, in some ways a, a bit of a lone wolf as a, a leader, not always uh, consulting his caucus, and um, he's. Uh, Although his extreme volatility is not yet on display, uh, that comes after the 54 election, there are nevertheless glimpses of, of him being somewhat uh, intemperate in his style. And I think this is enough of a contrast uh, to, to be able to make capital out of politically. And he has all of this brilliance, but he doesn't have the, the same leadership skills that is on display. Uh, during the election campaign uh, in their policy speeches. Uh, his, Menzies, what Menzies offers is uh, sort of moderate reforms. He offers the, certainly the not going down the route of the sort of dead hand of socialism. Um, and and against that, Everts offers some very extravagant uh, social welfare reforms that are uncosted, and uh it really does. the The whole policy is not just the leadership, but the whole policy contrasts are, are, are very strong too. That uh, what uh, Evert has to offer is uh, is um, immediately something that can be torn apart and is even uh, uh, challenged by uh, people in his own party, notably Bill Burke, who um, sort of commits the um, the sin of. Uh, of speaking against labour policy by uh, opposing this uh, very controversial reform that Ebbett offers in abolishing the means test on the old age pension. So uh, yeah, there are definitely the elements of presidential leadership style there, uh, and also uh, indicators that uh, the ship of state might not be steered quite so uh, adeptly under an Ebbett government.
0: Yeah, and and of course overlaid across this is, and you've just alluded to it before, this this labour split. So there's a, a divergence in the labour party between, um, particularly the Catholic labour, um, who are fervently am, anti-communist, and uh, and other parts of labour that have more more sympathy or more acceptance of, of communist elements, particularly within the trade union movement. Did could you see signs of that split before the 54 election? It was, it was obviously bubbling away um, and this was something mm. that, that, you know, Everett really mismanages pretty badly.
1: <laughs> yes, it was bubbling along and I suppose I think that the split would have occurred anyway because the factions were, were really so strongly aligned against each other that we do have this strong Catholic right faction uh, the interesting thing is that the industrial groups are introduced by the Labour Party to foil uh, communist membership in the union movement it's a, a policy um, matter but it becomes it, it it gets out of control really that the the there is, the left faction starts to get increasingly unhappy with the power that the, under, that, that the so-called groupers have within the Labor Party. So that, um, I think that showdown was always going to occur. Um, it probably wouldn't have occurred so soon. I, I, I think it's unlikely that it would have been um, averted altogether, but certainly Evatt uh, uh, adds fuel to that fire and uh, really with, with going out on his own on, on things like the uh, abolition of the means test in his, uh, in his election campaign, he really is adding fuel to that fire. Um, so, and, and then that continues uh, after the election. Uh, so really the, the biggest damage is done after the election but uh, but yes, we do see inklings of that in uh, in um, really in a, his non consultative style. I guess that is of course going to get the the Catholic right offside.
0: Do you think a different leader might have led to a different result, or was this an inevitability of the Labor Party in the fifties? There was just too too much of a difference of opinion. Mm. Uh, yes, I think
1: the the only other leader that would have been possible at that stage would be Arthur Caldwell, who also fell foul. Even though he was uh, a Catholic, certainly fell foul of the groupers. Um, so during the split, he he stayed with the left faction. He didn't go over to the deal. What became the DLP. Uh, so I don't think he would have been any more successful. Um, I do think that the split would have occurred. Uh, it could have occurred in a different way with a more conciliatory leader. Uh, but I think that passions were running so hot by 1954 that um, certain things that Everett did after the election, particularly his uh, throwing down the gauntlet to the, to the Victorian branch in October of that year, uh, certainly escalated uh, tension, but I I can't think of a way that that would have been averted altogether by another leader because uh, there there was so much animosity between the factions by mm. that stage, mm. Mm.
0: and of course the way Evert conducted himself with the 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 Royal Commission hearings that would have. Uh, <laughs> particularly fed into um, concerns among the Catholic right of the Labor Party that he, mm. you know, he he certainly was just not someone they could deal with.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting hypothetical to think uh, that if he hadn't done some of the the things that really um, put them offside. And, yes, thinking back to his uh, defence, uh, that his appearing for the Waterside Workers' Federation in particular in the High Court challenge to the legislation to ban the Communist Party. That certainly uh, was very much on the nose with the Catholic right, that he became associated with communists, essentially. Um, and that that was a lingering grievance under another leader, say, Corwell, that uh, that particular incident wouldn't have happened. So, again, I'm still inclined to think that Evatt certainly hastened that split, but whether another leader could have averted it altogether is still, I think, doubtful. Uh, as we know, the, the Labor Party was, <laughs> had had a, a couple of other um, very destructive splits in, in its history, and I, I think this was a split that was many years in the making,
0: mm. uh, and... It's interesting reflecting on your description of the concern the Australian public had for austerity and and the loss of the forty nine election by Chifley, because people were just sick of rationing and and living in you know, constrained circumstances. That that ever ever sort of doubles down on the you know we're not we're not going to be the party of rationing and austerity. We're going to have quite a large welfare spend. I mean uncosted as you said. Promising a whole range of payments to to different sectors of society, and, and that, that kind of blew up in his face. So where the public didn't want austerity, but they didn't also want a completely unaffordable set of welfare payments.
1: <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed, I think it is. It it, it really is a time of moderation. Mm. I think that because there have been these extremes that Australia has gone to war against fascism, there's fear of fascism now in the Cold War, there's fear of communism. So these two extremes, I think, are in the back of people's minds. So, yes, they don't want austerity, but they do want to feel this confidence in their leader. And I, I think the, the other thing that's really important when we think about leaders is that in the death of Chifley, they have lost a leader that, that was regarded uh, as, as a very sensible leader, uh, even though he was voted out in 49 that he is still that labor is still very popular that it's it's a fairly narrow vic- victory in 49 and a, and a very narrow victory in 54 that that legacy of say post-war cons- reconstruction um, the the beginnings of, uh, uh, of mass immigration uh, all of these these uh, big um, public spending ventures are, are have the approval of the Australian electorate. But that's another thing from going down a path that is uh, possibly unstable. So stability and uh, and moderation are are, are really something that, say, for the most part, the Chifley government and then the incoming Menzies government had in common. And uh, in the chapter, I refer to the two landmark speeches of of the the respective parties, the Light on the Hill and the Forgotten People, as being both appealing to this this very middle road that I think Australians want to travel down in the 40s and 50s. Um, So still in the 50s, despite the Cold War, uh, they want... They're really concerned with domestic issues. And uh, someone who will lead them uh, through that post-war uh, austerity and uh, fears of the, the, the inflation that's been occurring, the unemployment, that now that things are starting to get on track in early 54, that Menzies seems to be on the track to deliver those things so that they have confidence in him. But they still, given the narrowness of the, uh, the result, there is still a... a, a, a I suppose, an affection for an adherence to uh, the role of government as offering uh, sort of Keynesian reforms. This is very much a Keynesian era on both sides of uh, politics.
0: Well, well, that's right. Um, that Australian settlement, as, as Paul Kelly describes it, there's very little um, of what we would understand now as the kind of you know capital liberal party's commitment to you know, economic conservatism back in Menzies' era. He is a Keynesian, um, while he might not mm. have been an a Keynesian extremist like Everett Everett would have been if elected. He certainly does believe in you know, a protected economy, in in tariffs, in um, government mm. spending, in in certain aspects of, of nation building um, that we mm. we might not necessarily have seen in the um, iterations of the the eighties and nineties of both Liberal and Labor. Um, Bridget, you you write about an Australian tendency to conservatism, and that the fifty four election was was indicative of this that that Australians like to keep the status quo in that sort of middle of the road, and they don't they're pretty um, unkeen to go down either extreme. And that has been it's been written about that it's partly because of our compulsory voting system. We actually you know all have to vote, so the extremes, yes, they have a voice and at the ballot box, but, but Majority of people are not into the extremes in either direction, so can you tell me about how this this election does give you a taste of Australians' natural tendency to conserve? <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: yeah, um, yes, I think when we look at elections over the rest of the 20th century, we could say. Uh, I I do think that there are things about the 1950s that perhaps make Australians more inclined to take that middle-of-the-road approach, but that even if we go to 1972, uh, the Whitlam victory is not a landslide by any means. And uh, so people are ready for a change by then, but then uh, change happens too fast. And... uh, so the Whitlam government becomes very unpopular very quickly. And and I think that also affirms uh, this rather cautious approach that the Australian electorate has in general, that the sort of extreme, you know, extravagant promises and extravagant spending uh, doesn't go down well, so that if you're going to, uh, given that you do have to vote, that you're going to... Uh, take a more steady as she goes approach, generally. Of course, there are times when we do see uh, big changes happening. But, but even with those big changes, um, you, know, you might say 49 is a big change because they have been two very successful Labor governments um, and, and 72 is a big change. But uh, if, you, if you look a bit more below the surface, you can see that, uh, that, that, that these sort of everyday concerns uh, do drive the electorate generally, I think, in, in, in its uh, voting behaviour.
0: And I wondered if you could reflect on post 1954 and and what that meant for, well, the success and longevity of the Menzies government, but also the fortunes of the of the Labor Party. I mean, in just 18 months after the 54 election, Australians went to the polls again in 55. Um, Menzies was adept at using all manner of electoral techniques, timing of double dissolutions and, you know, half-Senate elections and the like to his advantage, calling early elections. It must have been an exhausting time for people going to, going to vote. The AEC must have been run off its feet. <laughs> but tell me about the post-54 electoral landscape and how that, how that manifested in Australian politics.
1: Well, I I suppose the the most important thing is uh, when we look at that long incumbency that really does uh, become established uh, very well and truly in the 55 election, Uh, that it is uh, the Labor's disarray that that contributes to that uh, long incumbency, that the Labor vote becomes split, uh, that we do have the splitting off of the the Catholic right into what becomes the DLP, and these are long wilderness years for for the Labor Party. Uh, So that really does, in, in some sense, I think, that there are, there are many things that I think uh, make uh, Menzies suit the Times, that it is a time that becomes um, uh, gradually more prosperous and, uh, and the government of the day tends to take the blame or the credit for the, for the economic situation. Um, so you have that, that, that the Times are, are working for him in many ways, uh, but also that he is a very able leader. Uh, and then you have this strong contrast. That uh, that labour is is sort of very much uh, demoralised and 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 fragmented by the split. That uh, I mean, it's hard to say which of the three uh, labour splits of the 20th century were the most damaging. But the the 55 split was uh, an extremely damaging split. Uh, so we we can't really un- underestimate the, 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 that that sort of negative. Effect uh, that it has on on the political landscape in
0: the years after fifty four. So really, fifty four Menzies Bacon is saved um, <laughs> by the Australian electorate. It's um, a real near a near run thing, and uh, and that sets him up for for power until sixty six. But he does have another near miss, doesn't he? In in sixty one. Uh, he, mm. he, he just survives that election against mm. um, opposition leader Arthur Caldwell with his deputy in, in a younger Gough Whitlam, of course. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm,
0: I think that the split really
1: uh, is, is responsible for that. Um, I, I think that from the early 1960s you can see a resurgent Labor Party, but it is still split. And uh, that uh, certainly some uh, one argument is that if that Labor would have won if it hadn't been split, but the Labor vote is still being split uh, between um, those who vote for the Labor Party, those who used to be part of the Catholic right in the Labor Party now have their own party to vote for. So, um, and it, it takes a long time for this change to occur. This is also a um, after Menzies, the uh, possibility, you know, the, the sense that Labor was going to win the sixty nine election, but uh, is has its hopes dashed there. Uh, so it's. Uh, I, I still think that consequences of the split are still being played out in in the sixty one election.
0: And do you think that um, the female vote had a an influence on these elections particularly i mean we've just seen a an election here in 2022 where um, women women made their voice heard um, well according to commentators at least we haven't seen the sort of breakdown yet of the uh, of the real analysis of who voted which way but the the commentators seem to feel that that women voted voted against the government and for for at least independence or, or the labor party in greater numbers than the men mm. For for Menzies, you know, who was talking about hip pocket issues. Who was appealing to the middle ground? Um, who who did appeal to um, policies that favoured strong families and and you know employment yeah. um, and did and of course. You know, the Labor Party was pitching to workers, to an industrial complex that, that women weren't necessarily part of in the 50s. Mm. Um, do, how much did women influence these, these results?
1: I don't know uh, exactly how much they influenced them. Um, it's certain that he, uh, that Menzies was able to communicate with women in a way that uh, that Labor didn't. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that yes, that, that when he's communicating to women, it is as homemakers and uh, those who are in charge of the family budget, and it is as women as members of the family, but not as women as potential members of the workforce. Uh, so that the uh, the gender issue then is very different from the gender issue in the in the recent election, uh, and it's it's hard to look at this without the benefit of. Hindsight, because uh, as you mentioned in my introduction, the history of feminism is, is one of my my interests, and I do see the fifties as quite an important decade. From that that perspective too, because even though again we tend to typify the fifties as you know the, the the nuclear family and the male breadwinner and the female homemaker, and that that certainly uh, is representative of um, demographically of of the majority of Australians, but there are you know things are changing, and uh, change has a long lead time, so. In the post-war environment, women are uh, starting to change their expectations um, of their role in the family. So while Menzies can communicate very well to women who might be very happy in that role, uh, that uh, I'm not sure in the long term how much a a difference gender makes uh, in in the way people vote because the Labor Party also uh, earlier in the century has had a... A strong record on um, on women's participation in in the workforce and equal pay and and so forth. So it's it's quite a complicated picture, but uh, certainly um, from the point of view as of regarding women's contribution to the domestic economy in in, in the form of their homemaking. I think Menzies does recognise that and see the need to speak directly to women in a way that other politicians haven't.
0: Well, I think that's... um definitely uh much more of a discussion for another day bridget there's um you know the importance of um the female vote and you know it shouldn't just be seen as one amorphous whole because women have lots of different views and lots of different perspectives and life experience and ec- different expectations of how they how they want to live their lives so um cannot be considered just in <laughs> one cohort with one set of conclusions to be drawn but it's um it's no it's really interesting because it's is um you know a powerful determinant of who gets elected ultimately. Um, well thank you so much for your time today Bridget it's been a delight talking to you about the 54 election and the lead up and the and the fallout and how important it was for the rest of that era and of course one of the elections um, that defined modern Australia so thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.